0: The following podcast contains occasional bursts of adult language.
1: I can't think of any novel or any piece of art
2: that seemed like a good idea in the first draft of it.
0: You're legitimate even if you don't publish. You know, Emily Dickinson was a legitimate poet. Van Gogh was a legitimate artist.
2: That's sort of what literature is. It's a Weird group of awkward people who don't care about football. You want your work to be read? Then write the best damn book possible.
0: From Studio B in Dubai, I'm Allison K. Williams, and this is the Brevity Podcast. This month's episode is all about submissions. We'll be talking to Joe Beth McDaniel from Rush, Gita Kotari from the Kenyan Review, Alexis Page from Right Here at Brevity, and writer Tim Hilligans about all things writing, sending, reading, rejecting, and accepting. Jo Beth McDaniel is an author and journalist based in Los Angeles. Her work has been published in AARP, House Beautiful, Veranda, Reader's Digest, and Newsweek. She wrote for Life Magazine and operated Life's Los Angeles Bureau. Her best-selling biography, A Special Kind of Hero, was named a Library Journal Best Book and a Literary Guild selection. We spoke at the Postgraduate Writers' Conference in Vermont. You are getting an MFA?
1: I'm almost finished. I turned my thesis in right before I came for this conference. Uh, It's a screenplay. It's set in a fictional town in Alabama called Adellum. And so it's the uh, MFA program at Mount St. Mary's University in downtown Los Angeles.
0: Would you recommend it?
1: Yes. um, It's a weekend program, which is really different from most. So it, it It kind of marries the uh, low residency feel because you're there every other weekend with being an in-residence on campus. It's, It's a really wonderful, diverse program, small program. And
0: when you got there, they no longer had a literary magazine. They had had one, and now they didn't
1: have one anymore. And so what happened from there? <laughs> well, I kept asking people, why isn't there a literary magazine? And, and you know, oh, there used to be this literary magazine. It was called um, The River or something with river in the title. I don't know. And it was a printed magazine. I think it was expensive. And the instructor had left, and so, so it had been years. And so um, we we got some new instructors in, and one came in specifically saying, we are going to start an online literary magazine. And she had done this. Joanna Novak is her name. And she had been a part of creating, um, I think, two different literary magazines. And so she got us all together. And again, we had a very diverse group of people who we voted on everything from, were we going to pay writers? Yes. Were we going to charge for submissions? No. Were, you know, what kind of magazine did we want? So we talked about Los Angeles and how the freeways and the gold rush and the rush to grow oranges and agriculture. There's just such a rush about Southern California. And so we just all fell in love with that name, The Rush. Okay. So you've just put out your second issue.
0: And about how many submissions did you get and how many did you publish? Oh, wow. It was
1: amazing. Our expectations were that, I don't know, I guess I was thinking we would get, you know, like a hundred or something. We got 600 submissions from Asia, Europe, Australia, all over. I mean, it was just, uh, it was overwhelming actually, because most of us are working at least part-time and going to school and you know and so this was just on top of that. Is anybody getting paid to work on this literary magazine? No you know in fact the school gave us a budget and we did have one person who felt very strongly that we should be paid and not pay the writers and the rest of us voted that down very quickly and said we're learning this is a wonderful experience for us. It's part of our school and it has been absolutely wonderful and fascinating what we've all learned going through this.
0: Let's just kind of break this down a little bit. Out of 600 submissions, how many would you say had been sent to the wrong place? Like it was a type of material that you don't publish or it was a genre that you don't publish or it was not of a quality level that was ready to be published. How many of 600 just went to the wrong place?
1: Oh, roughly half, I would say. Um, I mean, we made it clear that uh, we had um, uh, the theme for our magazine was, you know, the name was The Rush. The theme was the, uh, a higher energy type of piece. I remember we got this children's fairy tale story I mean, really written for a child. It wasn't even set in the U.S. I mean, we have certainly published pieces. It, it, they don't have to be set in L.A. or California. You know, they can be from anywhere. But we wanted that energy about them, and I think that was probably that. And of course, you know, we did get some pieces that were just we were just scratching our heads over. Yeah, <laughs> like why did this? Why was this a test? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there were some pieces that just just totally missed the mark, and and. It was funny because some of the letters that people would write these long letters with their submissions, which I, we didn't have time to read any of those until unless we had actually accepted a piece and maybe go back and look. But So cover letter, not a big deal. Not at, not at all. And the ones that were strange in that first set of submissions were the ones that said, I love your magazine. I love what you're, you know, because we had not published yet. So you knew that they were just going off some kind of script that they sent to everyone. And a lot of the pieces, in fact, I would say just about every piece that was rejected had that feel of, okay, just, they were just, you know, sending it out to everywhere. So
0: we've scrapped 300 submissions. We have a remaining pile of 300 more submissions. Of those 300 submissions, how many are at the quality level where they
1: could be published in your magazine? Oh, boy. Um, In fiction and in poetry, um, I think we had, you know, we rejected so many good pieces. And even in nonfiction, we rejected pieces that were beautifully written but just were so wrong for us. And in, one, um, in that first set of submissions, it was crazy. It was like, tw- I forget now, 12 pieces or something that were accepted because we took our time. We, we were overwhelmed. So we were taking our time going through everything. And while we were doing that, it was, I think, 12 pieces were accepted elsewhere where we had to pull them out of consideration. So before we had, we would all kind of vote. We did everything unsubmittable. Then we would get together in person and hash it all out because we we had way too many. I mean, we probably I would say, you know, if we had accepted every piece that someone loved, it would have been 50 or 60 pieces.
0: And then you come to the conundrum where you have two pieces or more that are both amazing, well-written, fit the mandate of the magazine, and yet you can only publish one, and the other one gets a rejection letter. Tell us why, Joe Beth.
1: Oh, this was one of the, this was something that I think every writer who submits work needs to know this. There were certain themes that came up in a lot of the stories. The death of a child the death of a parent, cancer, you know, they're just, these were things that, of course, people feel deeply about, and they were writing in fiction and in nonfiction, and we literally, our two top pieces, the ones that- The two
0: pieces out of
1: 600 that you wanted the most. The two pieces we wanted the most that everyone had, had clicked, yes, yes. We realized once we sat in the meeting, they both had this death that was eerily similar. I mean, totally different stories. They were fiction. They, you know, different narrator. I think one was third person and one was first person. And I mean, and, and actually in one, I don't think it was actually, it was a close call, but it was so sim. It was kind of creepy. It was so similar because we realized there's no way we can publish both of these stories. And it was just heartbreaking to send that rejection. And then we had to look at those two pieces and say, which of these really fits and the more polished piece? I know this sounds awful, but the more polished piece was rejected in part because the theme of the other piece was a little closer to our what we felt our mission was. I that was to me a big shock was how much really wonderful, wonderful work we rejected. And I think that's the the challenge and
0: why it sometimes feels a little bit like a lottery ticket, you know, so we can get ourselves into that top 300 by making sure we're sending to the right place, we're sending the right material, we can get ourselves into that top 50 or 60 by making sure it is polished, it is finished, it is ready, we have workshopped it, we've gotten teacher feedback, or we've gotten feedback from somebody much smarter than us.
1: But in the long run, we cannot control the other pieces in the pile. Exactly. And- you know, and that's the thing. If you're going to be writing about death, you have a higher bar to reach because there it's a type of theme with a with a lot of emotion. It's harder to pull off, and I, I think I should mention this too before I forget it. We rejected some pieces that were absolutely wonderful, beautiful, because they included song lyrics because they included chunks of other people's work and sometimes drew their power from you know, the, sometimes a long passage. And you get two problems here. With the song lyrics, you get
0: the problem that it is legally incredibly difficult to use song lyrics. They do not come under the same fair use as every other type of quotation. You cannot quote even one word of a song without finding the person who owns it, which is really difficult, and then paying for it, which is sometimes really expensive. And, and then the larger problem too with quoting other work, even though you can quote it for fair use, It doesn't work because,
1: well, you know there were a lot of reasons. In one, in one of the cases, uh, the people being quoted were children, were minors. Mm -hmm. So you've got the added you'd have to have the parents' permission and the child's. And it was just, and and it was something that, as a journalist, um, I'm well aware of copyright restrictions and within our staff we had other people who worked in various ways but you know if someone's a 23 year old MFA student they may not understand and but it could put the university in a tough position but also you know there was just that thing of it always worked better to use your own words period the song lyrics often drew away instead of Adding to the piece
0: well a lot of times I think it takes the reader into their personal associations with the song instead of what the writers intending to deliver and it's kind of like a cheap shortcut to emotional resonance
1: exactly yes and and sometimes they were songs that dated the piece in a way like you know a song lyric that I might know because of my age, but someone younger wouldn't and wouldn't know the significance or you know it just complicates things. And in a online literary journal, I mean, we tended to like shorter pieces, not flash fiction so much, but just you know, I remember there was one there was one story and it was um I think twenty pages long, and we liked it. but you know when it was up against shorter pieces, it was just like,, mm, you know. It didn't, it really could have been edited down to probably seven pages and been a stronger piece.
0: So if you have a piece that you think goes under the headline, The Rush, or it has a rushiness about it, or it is rushing, or it is trapped in rush hour, you know where to send it, off to The Rush, and uh, it's okay. You're probably going to get pulled out of that pile of 300 at some point, and if you don't, it's not for a reason you can control
1: oh that's so true and it and I have to say this experience has made me want to start a literary magazine I've talked about it with another friend because it's it's just wonderful to read all this writing just brand new coming through it's such a it's such a, a thrill to find a strong voice and a new writer and I just love
0: it The literary journal Rush will be accepting submissions again starting September 1st. In our next interview, we're going to talk about why you should be ready to submit your work on that first day of the submission period. Gita Kotari and I first talked at the Hippocamp Creative Nonfiction Conference. So I am here with the amazing Gita Kotari, and you just published a book of short stories called I Break for Moose.
3: And uh,
0: how do you feel about having a book baby out in the world?
3: It is a strange thing because I've been writing for years and years and years and years and no one cared. And now suddenly people are asking me on their iPhones about my book. So it, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Um, I feel good. I love the cover of the book. I love the title. Um, Indians and moose don't generally appear in the same frame. So, yeah, I'm happy about it. And as the nonfiction
0: editor of the Kenyon Review, can you give us a good piece of advice that we might not otherwise think of or might not be able to find online about how to successfully submit?
3: I would say there are two pieces of advice I can give. One is to read The Situation and the Story by Vivian Gornick or Michael Steinberg's excellent essay, Finding the Inner Story. And then also to read the Why We Chose It column, specifically the ones written about the essays, because that's where we come clean about what it is about something that really drew us in.
0: Beautiful. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Later, I realized I had a few more questions and spoke to Geeta from her home in Pittsburgh via Skype. Geeta, what is your position with the Kenyan Review?
3: All right. I am the nonfiction editor.
0: What does that mean? What do you actually do?
3: Well, and it's the same for all the genre editors. We read for the journal, basically, and we read in our genre. If there's a lot of fiction and less nonfiction, I'll also read fiction. We read, we share work amongst each other, and we pass everything up to David Lynn, who's the editor-in-chief everything we want to see in the journal. And then he makes the final decision. And I think that's something people don't understand about our journal, or maybe a lot of journals now too. But we don't all live in Ohio. We don't get together to vote on submissions. Everything happens electronically. And there is no voting process per se. It's not a democratic situation. Much of what goes into the journal, the final decision, is David's. That's not to say that we don't have a say in the journal, but the um, acceptance letter comes from David. Mm -hmm. And quite often, it just looks like David's the only person who's read, but he hasn't. There's been a whole host of conversations behind the scenes sometimes that the writer never knows about. And when you
0: are wandering around at writing conferences, when you are meeting other writers in context, and if you say to somebody, oh, hey, I think your writing is really cool. Why don't you send me something sometime? Or, oh, hey, I really like that essay you were working on. Why don't you send it to me? Are you being serious?
3: Yeah, because I rarely ask. (laughs) I Uh am very, very careful about what I ask for. Because it's very hard to say no once you've solicited something. So I want to ask someone who I think I can say yes to. Mm -hmm. Also, we get about 8,000 submissions a year. So I want to be careful about encouraging people because we only take a small percentage of that. Mm -hmm. Solicitation is hard because I can't take things once the submission period has ended through email or anything, because quite often, the journal pages, are get the real estate is getting snapped up because we're going through our regular submissions. So if I see someone in May and I like something they've read, there's not much point in them sending it to me via email in June. It's not going to fast track it anyway, because often the next year and a half of the journal is already full. And David, And I agree with him on this. He doesn't like to hold things for years and years and years before we publish them. Mm -hmm. One of the things we pride ourselves on is getting back to people in a timely fashion. We try to keep it within four months. Sometimes it's a little longer, but it's usually that. And publishing in a timely fashion. I just say no if you're not (laughs) going to take something. I just got a rejection from a place. It took nine months for them to reject it. And I had already moved on mentally. I wasn't holding my breath for this thing. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine just got a rejection from a really well-known journal. It took two years.
0: I just got one from a a journal which shall not be named but is well-known. And they had solicited something. And it was social media aimed, so it was also timely. Uh And they responded to me eight and a half months later.
3: Yeah, that's kind of pointless. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think solicitations are tricky in that way because of the timing and everything. But I do try to encourage people, if I like their work, to send it when our submission period opens mm-hmm. and to send it at the beginning of the submission period. And I don't know if this is true for other journals, but we're reading stuff at the beginning and we're, we're not waiting for better stuff to come along. If we like something, we're going to take it, right? So if you send something on the last day of a submission period... Even if your piece is really good, your chances of getting a note saying, we love this piece, but we have no space for it is much higher.
0: You know, I am so glad you brought that up because I have been for the past couple of months reading through submissions for the Brevity One Minute Memoir Contest. And one of the things I noticed was that we got out of 350 some submissions, we got 60 on the last day. So like, I think that's like 20%. Um, we get a sizable chunk on the last day. And by that right. point, I've already been reading as we go because I don't want to read 350 submissions all at once at the end. Right. And so I already have stuff in my head that you got to be better than that if I'm going to pick you because I already liked that piece.
3: Right. And yeah. we we send out acceptances on a rolling basis. We don't wait until we've gone through everything. Mm. And I imagine a lot of journals are like that. So we're reading things in the order they came into the queue, right? The order they were submitted in. Mm-hmm. And if you submitted something in September and it's really good and we send you an acceptance, we're not waiting for that really good thing in at the end of October. Uh, yeah. I think that's just logical. So if somebody
0: um, has a really good piece that they feel is really right for a particular journal, They should probably Mm -hmm. hang on to that piece, polish it up as best they can, and send it near the beginning Mm -hmm. of the next reading period, rather than trying to squeeze it in before deadline if it's near the end. That would be my
3: advice. Mm -hmm. Editors are fresher. There's more time at the beginning of a reading period. Just, you know, we're all academics, right? And the whole year of the journal is wide open. So we're excited about taking new stuff. And we turn away so much good stuff towards the end.
0: And I think, too, it's both a blessing and a curse in nonfiction that there are certain compelling themes and compelling situations that are worth Mm -hmm. writing about because they're powerful and because they resonate with a lot of people, but they resonate with a lot of people because they've happened to a lot of people. So we get a number of submissions on breast cancer. We get a number of submissions on the death of a parent, the death of a child. We get a number of submissions of I don't belong in the space that I used to belong in, um, you know, racially or class-wise. And so Mm -hmm. getting a piece on a common theme it's better to get it earlier because then we compare the pieces that come in later to the first one rather than the other way around.
3: Right. And then you also don't have that thing of, which is often, often goes unsaid. Oh, we just took a piece like this. We can't take another piece like this. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why it's important that we have, you know, one editor in chief who has an overview of the journal. I don't know what everyone else is taking or sending up to David. And because we all read across genres and Honestly, I send him something, and he sends out the acceptance letter, and then I've moved on. So I'm not keeping it in my head what each issue is going to look like, so he'll know. Yeah, and I that's interesting that
0: because works. I hadn't realized that, that it's like that where you know you're just saying yes to the stuff that's well written, and then there's a person mm-hmm. above you whose job it is to make sure that the journal is balanced.
3: Right. Yeah, no, he has to. How do you create a coherent and cohesive? issue, right? Mm-hmm. There have, that's what the editor-in-chief's job or the managing editor in some other journal. So they have the overview. And that kind of needs the daily hands-on attention that everyone in at Kenyon at, in Gambier is giving it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a whole staff or there's the associate publisher, the associate editor, all of those people who are working towards that and keeping track of everything. So,
0: so if there's a staff in Gambier and you've solicited mm-hmm. a piece, are they going to automatically know to put that piece in your queue or does the writer need <laughs> to make sure to address you particularly?
3: They need to address me. I can't tell you how many times I tell this to people and how many times they don't do this. And then are surprised when I don't see their piece. They need to address me. But people will say, oh, I didn't want to make it seem like we were friends. I'm like, why? You know, just address me by name. You don't have to say we're best friends or I've known you for 25 years or you saw me at such and such. Just use my name and say you requested this piece. That's all.
0: And it's not presumptuous to do that. Like, I mean, as writers, we're always trying to not overstep our bounds. And that's not an overstep. That's expected.
3: That's expected. And even when I don't know an editor, I always address my piece, if I can, to the editor by name. Mm -hmm. If I can find it on the masthead, just because I want to make sure it goes into the right genre queue, if they arrange their stuff like that, right? It, I don't think it's overstepping to address an editor by name, whether you know them or not. I think it's just good management, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. for the people reading through the stuff that comes in the queue. There's the managing editor. She's trying to decide where to assign things. If she sees something addressed to me, she's going to assign it to me and it cuts down on her work.
0: Especially if, you have a sense from a member of the editorial staff's Twitter or from an article they've written or from their work, and you think, oh, my work might really resonate with this particular person. Mm-hmm. It's totally worth addressing it to them.
3: Exactly. I tell you what I do mind. I do have a very, very strong pet peeve. I get like 30 emails a day having mm-hmm. to do with this general day job stuff. And I really, if someone sends me something there, it is so very likely to get lost just because when I go to that email account, that's not what I'm thinking. That's not my priority. And David has very clearly said to us, he really strongly prefers to see things in submittable. It makes it easier to keep track of everything. It makes it easier for him to know where everything is. It's a system.
0: And when you get somebody's submission in your personal email inbox, the first thing it tells you is, this person does not follow directions well. And it makes me think, are they going to be terrible to edit? Right. I will insert a quick side note here, which is, if you are a listener and I have bumped into you at a writing conference and handed you my card and said, send me that essay for the Brevity blog, it does mean send it to the email I hand you. And you're correct to do that. Sorry, go ahead, Geeta.
3: No, I think... If I say to someone, send me something via email, it's very clear. The other thing that I noticed, and I actually tweeted about this because it was shocking, uh-huh. how many people just ignored our word count guideline. And we're sending things this year 10,000 words, 8,000 words. You know, we have a maximum of 7,500 words. I just think if their guidelines follow them. Yeah. And I think I, the
0: challenge is that everybody thinks, oh, but but my piece is going to be the one that, that breaks all the rules. And it's like, you know, you've probably already been at least shortlisted for a major literary award when you can break rules like that.
3: Right. A- exactly. If Zadie Smith sends me 15,000 words, I'm going to read Zadie Smith's 15,000 words. But I don't know if David's going to use up that much real estate in a journal. I'll read them because I love Zadie Smith. But... I don't think she'll do that because she's Zadie Smith, right? And she knows the game. Right, exactly. A professional isn't going to do that. And I do find it really troubling. Someone sent in uh, recently some huge number of words and said, choose what you want out of this. I'm like, "Uh, I don't think so. No,
0: we don't have that kind of time.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And then there are people who will resubmit during the submission period after they've had a piece taken, which really surprises me. We just took a piece for, you know, this next round of journals. Why would we take another piece of yours in that same period?
0: Yeah. And I think it's probably a good idea to wait perhaps a year, maybe even 18 Mm -hmm. months before resubmitting to a journal that has accepted you.
3: Don't you think? That seems right to me. I mean, uh, you know, I like variety in what I read. I like to publish new writers. This is another thing people don't know, but we do read the slush, and we read it quite closely. Mm -hmm. And it's always exciting to find someone who's never been published or who's coming to writing from another field. We just took something by a doctor, and I was just delighted. There was a piece many, many years ago by a Chinese writer woman. As far as I can tell, it's her only published piece, and she worked really hard to to edit it, and it was listed as a notable and best American. I couldn't have been more delighted for her.
0: That's fantastic.
3: Yeah, it's one of my favorite Cinderella stories.
0: (laughs) Do you still remember your first publication? Do you remember where you first had a piece published?
3: My first literary publication was a short story I had sent it out thirty seven times. And my husband, who was not my husband at the time, came back from a visit to Canada and he bought me a bunch of literary journals because in those days you could go to a bookstore in Toronto and find all kinds of cool literary journals. And one was called the Toronto South Asian Review, which was very exciting to me because there was nothing like that in this country that I knew of. There I think I don't even know if the Asian American Writers Workshop had a journal at that point. This was, you know, 30 years ago. Maybe they did, Mm -hmm. but I don't think so. And so I was very, very excited. And I was telling him about this story and he said, well, you know, it's been rejected so many times. Maybe you should change the title because the title has nothing to do with the story. And I was like, but it's cute. And he said, you should change the title. So I changed the title, sent it to the Toronto South Asian Review with my return. You know, you have to get coupons to do international return mail or something like that. Yeah,
0: International reply
3: coupons. (laughs) That's it. That's it. So I, you know, it was so much effort to do that. And I sent it out and I remember really clearly getting the acceptance when I was in my old apartment and I was so excited. It was just the right journal for that particular story. And then that story ended up getting reprinted, you know, like, I don't know, three or four times after that in various anthologies. That was huge for me. But it also taught me a lesson that sometimes the right journal will appear to you in the most unexpected way. And all those previous rejections were nothing other than you haven't found your reader.
0: Well, Gita, thank you so much. It has been absolutely fabulous to talk to you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your fabulous editorial knowledge with our listeners.
3: Well, I hope it helps someone. um, And I hope I don't sound too mean. (laughs) Gita
0: Kotari's fiction and nonfiction have appeared in journals and anthologies, including The Kenyan Review, The Massachusetts Review, Fourth Genre, and Best American Essays. She directs the Writing Center at the University of Pittsburgh. Her newest book is the story collection, I Break for Moose. This month's episode is sponsored by Rebirth Your Book, a writing retreat in India for memoirists and novelists struggling through the middle of a draft. Get personal coaching, the inspiration of a beautiful setting, and five days of hardcore working through your manuscript. Find out more at rebirthyourbook.com. I'm here at the uh, Hippocampus Creative Nonfiction Conference, and I'm here with Alexis Page. And Alexis is also part of Brevity. Alexis, what do you do for us at Brevity?
4: I am an assistant editor, which is a very important job, uh, and I can't disclose any further details.
0: You had a great question in your session the other day, which is that Brevity does not read blind. We see the names when people are coming in. So how do you guys handle it in the reading queue when you see a person who you know has written a submission to the Brevity magazine? Well, personally,
4: I, you know, have no trouble being completely detached and unbiased. So I will go... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) What we typically do is just recuse ourselves. So, you know, this is... CNF is a small world, and you start to see people that you have maybe a tangential connection to or you went to school with or someone whose work you've edited somewhere else or they've edited yours, and it starts to feel a little... Is it nepotism when they're not people you're related to? It f- Or it feels incestuous, right? So if I have that icky, incestuous feeling about a piece, I know I have to take myself out of, out of it here. And we have, you know, there are three tiers of readers, so it goes through a process. But I would recuse myself, and they would kick it to someone else. So that bottle of wine was
0: wasted? Which bottle of wine? The... Magnum of champagne, I sent you that apparently Penny has (laughs) sidelined. Yes, it it was wasted. Yes,
4: yeah. Thanks, Alexis. (laughs) Thanks, Allison.
0: Alexis Page's first book, Not a Place on Any Map, was winner of the 2016 Vine Leaves Press Collection Award. Her essay, The Right to Remain, published in The Rumpus, was named as a notable in the 2016 Best American Essays. Her work appears in the New Madrid Journal, The Pinch, New Mexico Review, Fourth Genre, and on Brevity's blog, where she serves as assistant editor. We spoke from her home in Vermont via Skype. You talked about, you know, recusing and like, if you get that weird, icky, incestuous feeling, how do you handle it and yeah. everything? Um, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Like when you're reading, what's the process that you go through? So like for me, as I'm reading the submissions for the one minute memoir for our March episode,
1: mm-hmm. I'm
0: trying really hard to actually avoid reading the cover letter and like click yes. right to the submission. I want to read the submission first.
5: Right. Right. Um I agree with you. I, As you're asking me this, I realize I don't have a, a system or a set of policies or protocol, which makes me feel like perhaps I should. <laughs> uh, I just have kind of an intuitive process, but I do like to avoid the cover letter. This sounds like one of those things that you say as a magnanimous editor that you don't mean sincerely, but I really do mean this. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the work. The work mm-hmm. is the most important thing to me. There are certainly submissions that come in from big names, and sometimes they're wonderful and sometimes they're not, right? So the wor- it has to be about the work, but as a practical reality, we live in, I'll use your adjective, incestuous. We live in an incestuous editorial world of submissions and getting to know people online and on my Facebook friends with them. And... Do I sorta, of kinda of know them? Have I met? Them? You know, there's all of that kind of stuff going around, and then there's also the creative nonfiction world is pretty small. So there aren't as many of
0: us as there are poets,
5: right? Yeah, and I, I haven't, you know, I don't have the empirical numbers on that. It just feel that feels true that. <laughs> <But, laughs> that cnf is smaller than poetry and fiction maybe that's not true but um i think
0: it is though because i've heard a number of lit mag editors comment that they receive the most submissions in poetry oh. the second most in fiction and the third most in creative non-fiction and i i almost wonder if there's something to the idea that because poems are short they appear deceptively easy yeah right Yeah.
5: That's probably true of the short form nonfiction. I realize I haven't completely answered your question. Um so I don't like to read the cover letter first. Mm-hmm. however, I am not super tech savvy, and I find that we use submittable and sometimes I will read on my laptop, but then when I read it on say my iPad, there's sort of a different process of what pops up and what opens, and I'm really terrible about figuring out what What makes what pop up first. And so sometimes I will, you know, on, and I'm not sure in which format, but the cover letter will just kind of open up. Mm -hmm. And I can't help myself, you know. I mean, sometimes I won't read it, but sometimes I will read, I have to admit that I will read the cover letter. um, And that's not usually good because if the person has a sparkling bio and a super succinct letter, which I love, I might be more inclined to it on the other hand if the letter is a page and a half long and kind of gives away this is a story of the blah 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 mm-hmm. i'm already kind of irritated or disinclined so that's not good you know i if i just am dropped into the work into the submission mm-hmm. then everything that's working on my emotions and my editorial instincts is just the work itself right so
0: yeah I think authors have a desire to establish that we're worthy like we feel like we have to put all our credits in the cover letters so that like I belong here I swear I belong here I'm one of you I'm one of you even though I don't feel like I'm one of you you know and I I think that feeling never quite goes away because there's always somebody who's sold more books than you you know sure it's, it's hard to get over that but at the same time so when I was a kid, I was kind of a weird kid, and I read all of the Miss Manners books for fun. And oh, my God. <laughs> and I will always remember this one passage where Miss Manners was saying, when you introduce yourself, give the minimum. Because it's mm. so much more powerful to say, you know, hello, I am Isabel Smith, and later they find out that you have won a Nobel Prize than it is yes. to lead with, oh, and I've, I've won this, this, and this, you know. So, I mean, there's kind of a balance there of it is nice to say, Oh, Hey, I was in this other magazine, but at the same time, it helps us let it be about the work when there is less in the cover letter.
5: Sure. Sure. But then other magazines, of course, they, they have some filtering system where the, the cover letter and the name does not get to the reader at all. Yeah. And so that might be, you know, one way around that. Um, I mean, I'm guilty of, I have a bio, it's, I try to keep it short, uh, but sure, you want to establish that you're legit and you're a serious writer and you want this piece to be taken seriously, as if it wouldn't be taken seriously, right? And of course it it should, and hopefully it is taken seriously regardless of that. I might not read the cover letter, but I will see the submitter's name Mm -hmm. and the name of the piece. Mm I automatically see the name chances are it's someone that I know and whose work I know and I know them in a larger context and probably I like them. Yeah. So I'm, and probably I like them because I have been moved by their work at another time. Right. Mm-hmm. Or po- probably I like their work. So I'm already kind of inclined to lean forward and perk up as I'm reading the mm-hmm. piece. And that's, you know, that's not fair. So that. Feels to me like a clear boundary that I can draw. I know this person. Now there may be names of people that I I don't recognize the name, and perhaps I am Facebook friends with them, but mm-hmm. I don't consider that knowing that person. You know, uh-huh. but if it rise to the level of my consciousness where I see the name and go, oh, so and so, right? Yeah. I I have I take myself out of it immediately because, you know, then it becomes. Of course it's a subjective process anyway, but it becomes that much more subjective, right? And I think that to the the degree to which we can kind of take away some of the subjectivity is is good.
0: Well, and I think there's also kind of a hidden blessing in subjectivity because as I go through submissions, there's a fair number coming in from people who I know on Twitter or people who I've met at conferences. And sure. I feel like the nice thing about that is I know them enough so that I feel like I can give them a single line of feedback if there's time in the letter instead mm-hmm. of just the standard rejection letter and trust that they're not going to come back at me with some snippy response about how, you know, how <laughs> they didn't take my work, which sometimes happens. To yeah. yeah. Right.
5: Right. I don't I don't see those. I think uh,
0: Dinty and
5: Jake must see all of that in the, you know for brevity the literary mag. Um, I don't
0: see any of those, fortunately. And it's kind of nice in a way because I—I I, I don't know if you know this about me or not, but my background's actually in circus. And, I um, do. I oh. learned <laughs> this at hippocamp Camp, and <laughs> okay. I—just another
5: nugget of delight. It's, Miss it's, Manners and circus.
0: <laughs> it's it's great. the perfect combination. It's the perfect combination. I love it. Yeah. And I think that gives me a, a kind of different insight as far as giving feedback to people, because in the circus, it's kind of traditional that your coach tells you horrible things when they want uh-huh. you to get better and they're <laughs> proud of you. You know, uh-huh. like, you, can, you can tell who the best student in the class is because they're the one getting the meanest criticism.
5: So it's kind of that idea of like roasting.
0: Kind of, yeah, because, I mean, you know, they don't they don't waste their time if they don't think you can be good enough, you know, and they all come from I mean, all the best circus coaches come from ex-communist countries and they all grew up under terrible systems in which their families did not eat if they did not do the flip, you know, so it's they, they come from a hard life. And so I find that even when I'm talking to people about their writing, it's easier for me i think than i have heard from other writers to look at someone and say okay well your problem is you actually start four paragraphs in instead of this first paragraph and i think you should cut those yeah. first three paragraphs yeah. and to try to say it with a sense of goodwill and love so that they know it's coming sure. from a place of let's make you better so i think yeah. that's, i think that's the advantage to not reading blind is feeling like oh there's going to be people who later on this year when i see them in person maybe i can tell them a few things about their piece mhm or have a discussion. That's interesting. In
5: yeah, I mean, I think it depends on kind of how you see your role as an editor. I, I see myself as a little bit more removed in the process than that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, people are not trying to court me at AWP and these kinds of places because I, I'm not like the face of property <laughs> by any stretch. Um, and that's I think that's good for me. That would probably irritate me, I think. I don't know. Maybe it's nice. So I don't really run into that, like, oh, I've got to remember so-and-so's piece and give them feedback. And I know that different editors I've worked with have been of different schools in terms of whether or not to give feedback in mm-hmm. a letter. I think it can personalize a rejection, and that's nice. But the practical reality is that for a lot of us, there's, there just isn't time to be giving feedback. And then sometimes I have seen it backfire where people have gotten feedback on a submission and felt like, hey, buddy, this is not a workshop. Yeah. You know, just yay or nay is fine. And so I, I don't really know how I feel about uh, the feedback in a rejection. I think if I already have a, an established relationship with the editor, like they've published something of mine or nominated me for a prize or something, and mm-hmm. it's just the standard rejection, then I'm going to feel like, whoa, we went from... You no know, we were dating and now you know where are we i'm in the friend zone yeah i don't know i don't know what the right answer and I, I think everyone's a little bit different but i do think that dinty tries to give some feedback to submissions that made it you know kind of to the the second or third round you know yeah. or, or was really close yeah and that's nice because you want to let people know we really love this and mm-hmm. there was you know, there was just another dive that was a 9.8 and yours was a 9.7, right? Like you were so close and it's so good. It
0: doesn't mean that your work isn't yeah. good. In the interview earlier this episode with Joe Beth McDaniel, we spoke a little bit about when you get two incredible pieces and for some reason you cannot take them both, which means you have to turn down one yeah. really incredible piece that in a perfect world right. you would have taken.
5: Sure. Yeah, And and that's where I think all those layers of subjectivity come to bear, whether we're aware of it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe one piece edges out another just because it's, it's it does something magical tonally, right? Both pieces are technically perfect, but yeah. there's something, some je ne sais quoi, some X factor in one that just ekes out a win, right? Yeah. Yeah, that definitely happens. I think sometimes people get those so uh, I think we call them close but no cigar rejections mm-hmm. at brevity. And I have heard people say, like, oh, I, act as if almost they need to go back to the drawing board and revise this thing another 17 times. And it's like, no, 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 you have this is publishable. It is very close. Yeah. So it is probably publishable. It was just maybe the wrong season. We just published something on that subject. Mm-hmm. Or as, Amy Sedaris once said, I'm just not into white guys right now. Like we might, we're not into armadillos (laughs) right now. I don't know. It's, there are all these different factors that may have nothing to do with the quality of the work.
0: Yeah. Right. And so often it's less about the quality of the work and more about timing or the right home for the piece of work Sure. and us not being the right home for a particular piece doesn't mean the piece is not ready. Right.
5: Exactly. Well said, well summarized. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Alexis. You're
0: welcome. Thank
5: you very much, Allison.
0: Tim Hilligons is a writer whose work has appeared in River Teeth, Brevity and the Brevity Blog, The Fourth River, The Plowshares Blog, and Recovery Quarterly. He serves as a contributing editor for Slag Glass City, a digital journal of the urban essay arts. That doesn't make it any easier when sending out his manuscript. I am here at the Hippocamp Creative Nonfiction Conference with Tim Hilligans, And Tim, you have written a memoir. Uh, What's it called as of now?
2: Across the Great Divide.
0: And what's it about?
2: It's the story of getting kicked out of high school, uh, buying a one-way plane ticket to Colorado with $100 and a bag of clothes moving out there meeting a girl, getting into a chaotic relationship, getting in trouble, going to jail, and then the fallout from that, and uh, it's it's sort of about becoming the thing that you never intended to be, and then how do you recover from that.
0: And you had a really interesting and long and twisty query process. You want to tell us about that?
2: I did. Uh, No, I don't want to tell you about it at all.
0: (laughs) But it's the podcast, so I'm going to encourage you to be self-revelatory and tell us about it anyway.
2: Yeah, it was a really long and arduous journey, but I quarried 180 agents.
0: I I want you to say that number again one more time, just so all our listeners hear it.
2: 180 agents. It, It was actually 230 agents, but the first 50, I don't count because I revised the book so much afterward, after that first 50. But yeah, then it was 180 agents. I heard back from a ton of them. It was, a, I mean, it was successful in the sense that a lot of agents read pages and, feed, and gave me feedback. But the thing that I heard the most was just that they loved the book. They thought it was good writing. They had no idea how to position it in the market. I think really it's a business and they only have so many connections and so many folks that they know how to pitch the book, who to pitch the book to or how to pitch the book. And it just wasn't something that was resonating right away. And it was a frustrating revelation, but I think it ultimately got me to the end that I needed to find, which was that a different New York publishing might not be the place for this book, and that's okay. And I actually had a writing uh, mentor of mine that, that encouraged me not to think of it hierarchically, um, so don't think of it in terms of like New York and then mid-level publishers and then university presses, and instead think about it as spheres and like what sphere uh, the book might do the best in. And I think the sphere for this book, which is a literary memoir, is probably in a university or small press space for people are making books that care about books.
0: I got to ask you then, Tim, 180 rejections, 230 rejections, a lot of us would quit. Why didn't you
2: quit? Because I think at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's only a failure if I stop, Right. And I don't necessarily think that publication is ultimately the measure of success for the book because it took me three years to write it. I spent all of last year completely rewriting it again. You know, it almost killed me, as I'm sure you hear a lot of people say. But it's a way better book, and it's something that I'm super proud of. And I think ultimately, like, there's a reader for this book, and I just haven't found her yet.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And really, we were listening to Dinty Moore's keynote speech earlier, uh, just a few minutes ago, and he said, you know, sometimes it's enough just to write the book. That's an achievement that we should all be proud of.
2: Yeah, and I totally agree with that. I mean, I learned so much about myself as a writer during the process. And uh, I mean, it's ultimately a better book. It takes a long time to make a book. I think that it took this long to make this book. And I think that now it's only going to be better when it met, when it reaches the editor that ultimately acquires it.
0: Do you have any advice for anybody else who's currently going through the submission process?
2: Yeah, I would say, I mean, one of the things that I did that was super helpful early on was, um, was hire a query coach, someone that would help me write a query and a synopsis that was going to be a little bit more market savvy than anything I could do. That was like, you know, I think it cost me like three or four hundred bucks, so it was a, a significant investment, but totally worth it because the uh, the amount of response that I got after that did change, and it also just helped me think about the book in a different way, right? So I'm close to it, but it is at the end of the day, it's a product that somebody needs to sell, and there are ways to position products. So that person was able to help me do that, so that was something early on, and then, I mean, certainly like all the lessons that we've heard from. A lot of people like do your homework in the beginning, so like the first 50 agents that I queried after the initial 50 that I don't count, um, I really did my homework. They were all agents of essayists that I read and love, or memoirs, or just nonfiction writers that I read and love, and that was always the entry point, uh, so that was really helpful and, and the right way to do it. But I think like ultimately just remembering that the floodgates are open, everyone that has access to an email address for an agent is emailing that agent right now when you are emailing that agent. And so it truly is a numbers game. So I think like 180 is a lot, but I think in terms of like how many agents are out there and how many agents are reading like the type of work that you're, you're submitting, I'm just scratching the surface. But at the end of the day for me, it was like how much work do I really want to put into this? you know, maybe it's time to think about it a different way.
0: And so you've switched to submitting to university presses and are experiencing some success there. And I really hope that we're going to have you on the podcast again in just a few months when you get that amazing publication deal that your book richly deserves.
2: Right. Because at the end of the day, like, I totally want this huge, like, failure to success story where I could be like, well, in my day, you know, I queried 180 (laughs) agents.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Tim Hilligans. Thank you. I spoke with Tim at the Hippocamp Creative Nonfiction Conference back in August. Tim, tweet me. Let us know how it's going. I don't usually read my own work on the podcast because I figure you hear my voice enough. But I wanted to share an essay relevant to today's episode from my book, Get Published in Literary Magazines, about how we as artists persevere in the face of rejection. Disinformation. What nobody tells you as an artist is that every project starts at the beginning. Not just the blank page, the empty stage, but that you have to re-establish your credentials and your quality every time. You can coast on reputation a little, but it doesn't last long if you don't deliver. What nobody tells you is that praise, a standing ovation, a good review, your teacher's approval, makes you feel good for a day, but one line of internet criticism from a stranger reverberates in your skull forever. Frankly, I don't see what all the fuss is about. I tried to feel bad when that critic killed himself the next year, but I didn't. What nobody tells your husband is that writing 3,000 words in a calm, soothing, supportive environment still leaves you too tired to call home at the end of the day. So does doing three 20-minute shows. And then feeling guilty about it, but not guilty enough to call. What nobody tells you, the artist, the writer, is that spending an entire day being paid to do something you love is not the same as fun. It's often better than fun, but it's not fun. What nobody tells you is that spending an entire day being paid to do something you love is sometimes a lot less fun than spending an entire day doing something you love for free. What nobody tells you is that selling out is strangely comforting. That once you've decided to package your product and suck a little corporate dick for the chance to show most of what you like to do, but structured as a James Bond theme and wearing black and yellow because it goes with the logo, the large check that ensues will feel earned that paying rent with your art money feels like finally growing up, that you probably can come up with 500 words about margarine and even feel proud of making it sound like something people would eat. Please don't. What nobody tells you is that if you believe in yourself and dream big dreams, you will still come in second to someone who worked hard or to a talentless hack related to the producer or to somebody sleeping with the editor Or to your best friend, who you will have to congratulate as sincerely as possible. Or to someone no better than you, and there will be no reason at all. What nobody tells you is that if you believe in yourself and dream big dreams and work hard, you can accomplish anything. But if you're willing to wear a sexy outfit while accomplishing it or include vampires, you'll get paid a lot more. What nobody tells you is that you have to be the kind of person who can hear a hundred no's before you get to yes. And that if you are not that kind of person, selling your art may not be for you. Here, let's practice. No, 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 no. I'll call you back. No, 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 We went with someone else. No, 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 no. My cousin will do it for free. No, 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 This did not fit our needs at this time. We sincerely wish you the best of luck placing it elsewhere. No, 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 no response means no. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Next, no. No, 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 My boss said no. My editor said no. No, 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 no. Sorry. No, no, no. Speaking editorially, we should get to yes here, but it's better to experience the dissatisfaction of having our expectations unfulfilled so that we can quit before dissatisfaction crushes us or so we can immunize ourselves. So we can say, I am blue, my work is blue, the blue of a thousand cerulean seas, the blue of Texas bluebells, the stunning blue of the sky from the top of the mountain, the deep blue of sapphires, the gentle blue of my mother's eyes, the best blue. They might want red. And what nobody tells you is that it's not up to you to be red, and that whether or not you want to make your blue more of a purple or draw a crimson border around it or pass out violet tinted glasses to all your readers, it is a choice, your choice, your choice to change or stay the course and neither of those are wrong. It is not a cruel world full of no... It is a beautiful world in which the one or many persons to whom your work, your particular personal work speaks, are waiting for you. Waiting for you to grow, to revise, to polish, to publicize, to sell, to share. Waiting for you to make art they love and will pay for. Go and find them. I'm Allison K. Williams. This is the Brevity Podcast. Now go write something. Show notes and links to the people, places, and books we've discussed today are on the Brevity blog at www.brevity.wordpress.com. Find us on Twitter at BrevityMag. Our editor-in-chief is Dinty W. Moore. Our podcast editor is Catherine Rose. Technical support from Alpha Pommels and Ronald Anaha. Our theme music is by Mike Viseglia and Zach Sulam. The Brevity podcast is produced by me, Allison K. Williams. Find me on Twitter at Gorilla Memoir. Like the rebel, not the ape. Next month, we'll be speaking to debut novelist Rihanna Navin about her new book, Only Child, and how fiction comes from personal experience, and Ander Munson, editor-in-chief of Diagram. And stay tuned for our March episode, One Minute Memoir. Thanks for listening. <laughs>